0: Hi, my name is Laura, and the reading today comes from Acts 3. It's the whole verse. The lame beggar healed. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was begging, being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask for alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's and when Peter saw it he addressed the people men of Israel why do you wonder at this and why do you stare at us as though our own power or piety we have made him walk the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had been And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, and thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will rise up for you, a prophet like me, from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophets shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after also proclaimed these days, you are The sons of prophets and the covenant of God made with your fathers, saying to Abram, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness.
1: silver and gold have I none but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth rise up and walk before I get anywhere in this message before I even start my introduction if you hear nothing else today hear this from me in the name of Jesus rise up and walk Jesus is salvation Jesus is the answer good morning So there's so many people, there are so many cool people in the Bible. Samson was pretty cool, I think, with his like, super strength. David was pretty cool, fighting giants and armies. You could say Jesus was pretty cool, too, walking on water and stuff. But today, we're looking at a guy who was not cool. You could even say he was uncool. In fact, what the Bible says about him is that he was lame, Yeah, yeah, there you go. That's my lame attempt at humor to start this message. But in fact, I do think that this man was pretty cool, and we will see why in a little bit. Um, Acts chapter 3 is an interesting chapter. It's a bit of an in-between, because if you've been with us over the past few weeks, as we've been going through the book of Acts, you've seen the Pentecost moment, where there was this outpouring of the Spirit, and then Peter got up and preached. And there was a massive response of 3,000 coming to salvation. And the interesting thing about Acts 3 is it almost follows the same pattern. There's an outpouring of power, there's a moment of of miraculous work of the Spirit, and then Peter gets up and preaches. And you see this pattern in Acts 2 and, and Acts 3 repeated, power, proclamation, response, power, proclamation, response. It's almost a repeat, but there's a different ending. Spoiler alert, before you know, if you've read ahead in Acts chapter 4, unlike in chapter 3, excuse me, in chapter 2, where 3,000 got saved, in chapter 4, they come and arrest these guys, drag them before the authorities, and begin to persecute the church. So it's an interesting little chapter because it sits between this sort of miraculous outpouring at Pentecost and the start of persecution. And you see the exact same pattern repeat, but with a different outcome, which is. Really a spoiler alert, but (laughs) it's why I've called this message Power and Proclamation. We're going to look at this passage in two parts. First, we're going to see the miracle that happened as this lame beggar was healed. And then we're going to see how Peter stepped up for the second time, stepped up to the moment to proclaim the good news. So Acts 3, verse 1 to 2. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. So if we pause right there to notice a few details. Firstly, this man was laid in the temple daily. Every single day, friends, family, I'm not sure who, they carried him here and they put him in this place to beg. Secondly, he was lame from birth. He was born lame. He, he didn't ever have a time where he wasn't lame. And this is important to notice because it means he had been laid here daily for a very long time. Day after day, year after year, laying this guy in the door of the temple. Now take note of that. And then if we turn back for a second to Acts chapter 2, verse 46, you read this. And day by day, attending the temple together. The verse goes on, but that's the bit I want you to notice. Day by day, attending the temple together. That's the believers of the early church. There in Acts chapter 2, every day they were in that temple. They were coming there, walking past this lame man day after day. Here's another important verse. Just one example. Mark 11, verse 11 says, And he, that is Jesus, And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And by the way, it might be worth mentioning, there was only one temple, if you were wondering. It's Old Israel, it wasn't like today where we've got churches here, there, and everywhere. It was this one temple for the whole country, in a way, for the whole world, this one place on earth where the presence of God could be approached. Now, why does all this matter? Well, it's because that man had been lying at that temple door every day for years, he had seen disciple after disciple walking in and out past him, without healing him. He had, the Bible doesn't say this, but it it seems likely to me that even Jesus himself may have walked past this man, without healing him. Whether that's the case or not, I read a verse in my in my Bible reading yesterday that I haven't put in here, but it's. Uh, Jesus speaking to his hometown of Capernaum and he spoke about how in the days of Elijah there were many widows in the land of Israel but Elijah was only sent to one widow. So there's this principle going on where although Jesus healed many people he didn't heal this man. Although many miracles were being done for quite a while this man was not healed. What does this mean? It means this. It means that not every need Is a call. At the outset of this message, at this first part where I'm going to be speaking about power, it's very important that we understand this. Not every need constitutes a call from God. For every lame man that Peter healed, there are hundreds that he didn't heal. For every sick person that Jesus restored, many more were not restored. Not every need is a call. Now this is not the same as to say that God wants someone to be sick or that God wants people to be lame. It's it's not an excuse to us to ignore every need. The brokenness of this world is not something that God loves or approves of. But it is important to understand here that God's ways are not our ways and His plans are are not our plans. His timing is not our timing. And importantly, this is a call not to harden our hearts. Please, my friends, do not let your hearts be hardened towards the poor and the needy. As much as we recognize our own limitations, our right response is not to close our hearts to the cries of the needy, You need to have a very mature heart and a mature faith. We need a heart that can can see someone begging, can see that child come to beg at your car window at the traffic light. And we need eyes that will look them in the eye and a voice that can say, I'm so sorry. I have nothing to give to you today. And then when that light goes green and you drive away, you're not hardening your heart, but your heart is broken for the needy and the hurting. And you can maybe offer a prayer to God to do what you cannot do. It's important that we be able to understand that not every need is a call, but that's not a call to us to shut ourselves off from the need in the world either. I remember grappling with this idea when I was younger. I I grew up in one of the poorest cities in the world, in, in Madagascar, in Tanarivo, and encountering people in extreme need was a daily reality. You, you couldn't walk down the street without someone asking you for money. You couldn't drive anywhere. Uh, you know, it's not that different in here, to be honest. So you drive around and you see people everywhere who have this incredible need. And it can wear you down. I think like, you know, praise God for psychologists, we have technical words like compassion fatigue. But I think these days I tend to prefer a simpler approach which is just to say that we, you and I, are finite. And so when we feel the, the pull of a seemingly endless need on our finite resources, there's a natural response there of self-preservation to, to close yourself off from that because you intuitively you know if you start to pour out your resources to this, you'll run out that quick. So there's, that, that was what I grappled with because seeing this need all around it would start to frustrate me, or it would even make me angry. You feel, guys, like demanding on you what you have that very sense. I don't have enough. You can't have it, you know, but you feel guilty at the same time because you, you should, aren't you, I'm, am I not a Christian? I should give. I was hardening my heart to protect myself from the needs around me. And I'm not sure what changed, or honestly, if even enough has changed. I'm a work in progress and it's a continual battle against my natural self-preservation, but I do want to tell you something that helps a whole lot, which is when you can realize that fact that you are not the source of the supply that that other person needs. They don't need what you have. They need what God can give. And so you only become a connector to the infinite supply of God. And that's I think, the key to how you can walk around in that tension where you may not be called to address this need, but you're not called to harden your heart to it either. You're actually called to feel the hurt of that hurt and then lift that person up to God. Peter did that. I've got no silver and gold. I can't give you what you're asking for, but what I have is what you really need. I have the power of Jesus. And if we can learn to live that life, will become agents of change. So Jesus walked past this man, I think, without healing him. Peter and John certainly must have walked past him without healing him. His need was very real. But God's plans were bigger than one man's need. At the right time, God provided power to heal. And so before I move on to speak about that power, understand this. The world is full of brokenness. There is need far beyond what we know. And we cannot address every need. We are not expected to address every need. God isn't expecting you to fix the world. God will not give you the power to solve every need. His plans are just bigger than that. See, there's going to be need in this world until Jesus comes back. And at that right time, ultimately, we're going to see that He is all we will ever truly need. And so, what I want you to do is to walk out of here this morning into a broken world, but you walk filled with a glorious freedom that you don't have to be the solution to the world. You don't have to carry every burden, heal every hurt, and right every wrong. You have only to do this – to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. That's from Micah chapter 6, verse 8. This floor is creaking under me so much. So having spoken about that freedom then, I want to invite you deep into this tension, a real tension of Christian life. As much as we are not expected to address every need, we have received power to address some some need. God puts certain people in front of us at certain times so that we can become a visible demonstration of his kingdom coming. Acts 3 verse 3 to 7. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. He's not asking for what he really needs. He didn't have that knowledge to ask, please heal me. He just asked for some money. But Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Peter didn't heal every lame beggar that day, but on that day, a particular person with a particular need, captured his attention, and the power of God worked through him. That's important. A few months ago in the, the Way of Jesus series, Raj put this question to us, who is the Father giving you? Who is the Father giving you? God is not giving each one of us everyone, God is not giving all of us every need. But in particular moments, on particular days, you need to ask yourself that question. Who is the Father giving me? Is this need one that God would have me address now? Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has prepared for you good works. He's prepared things for you to do. From ages past, long before you were ever born, long before your parents had the idea of you, God had already prepared for you good works, that you could walk in them. That's important, to walk in them. It's, it's not that you could think about them and then, you know, not do them and feel guilty about it. God's prepared it for you to do it. Philippians 2, verse 12 to 13 says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, it is God who is at work in you. It says, Work out your salvation. What does that mean? Let your salvation be seen. Work it out. Don't just say, Yeah, I've got it, and then, you know, sit on the couch and watch TV. Go out there and let your salvation show. And in fear and trembling. Now, that is not fear and trembling as if God is waiting over you to punish you for not working out your salvation or for working it out wrong, it's not that you're going to upset the big boss. It's not that kind of fear and trembling. That is the fear and trembling of knowing the awesome privilege and responsibility that God has placed in your hands. It's the the fear and trembling that keeps a king or a president awake at night. My decisions will change this whole country. They don't fear that punishment, they just know how high the stakes are. The best analogy I have for you is maybe this. Say your friend calls you up one day and says, I've had an emergency at, at work, I need to go into the office, I wasn't planning it, can I please leave my kid with you to watch them? And you say, oh, I, I guess so, I'm, you know, I'm at home. So they drive by and they hand over their precious child to you and they drive off to work. And you're left standing there holding this, this, this child, the most precious thing in your friend's life has just been placed in your hands. Do you not stand with fear and trembling? <laughs> I do not want to be the one to mess this child up. <laughs> Scarred for life. What responsibility? What trust? It's that kind of fear and trembling. God has entrusted us with so much. He's entrusted you with stewardship of your life and your resources. But he's also entrusted with, to you his gospel. The good news of Jesus, He's put his Holy Spirit inside of you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Or, as 2 Timothy 1 verse 14 puts it, "By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Work it out with fear and trembling. You have been given awesome responsibility from God. Hopping back to Ephesians 2 verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what is our call? It's simple. It's to walk in the good works he has prepared for us. Think of your life. Who has God put in your life to love? Who is the Father giving you? Hey, there's a paper sitting on some of these chairs with an opportunity to serve, is the Father calling you to give up one of your Sundays and go serve in Kids Rock? Don't wait. You can, I don't mind if you tick the box off while I'm still preaching. <laughs> Our responsibility is not to let these moments slip by us. Solving only one problem and leaving a million things unsolved is not wrong. There's an interesting thing that happens where... Christians and even non-Christian charities, they they get passionate about a certain issue. And they start to pour time and investment and uh, resources into solving this particular thing. I think of um, abortion, where many pro-life groups work very hard to try to stop abortion and to provide alternatives. And this interesting kind of critical spirit comes up around them, where people start to say, Oh, but you only care about... You don't care about like, the the, big, the homeless people on the street. You only care about abortion. You guys are very selfish. It's, it's this fascinating idea that if you 're going to address one problem, suddenly you must be fair and address all problems. That's evil. That's, it's, not, it's not wrong to think that if you address the one thing God has given you and don't address what God has not given you, that you are sinning, that's not wrong, that's humility. We can't fix every problem. You can only do what God has called you to do. But so many times we're, we're hamstrung by this idea that we should address every need. We get stuck in decision paralysis. Do I do this or this or this or this? I only have 10 rand to give. So I'll give you one cent and I'll give you one cent and I'll give you one cent. And then no, no one gets any better. 10 rand was a bad example. That doesn't help anyone these days. <laughs> So what has God called you to do? And if you're not sure, just pick a need and start helping. Pick one, just one thing. Trust God is great enough to guide your guessing. Acts 3 verse 6, Peter said, I have no silver and gold. Just before we move on to proclamation, as we're still speaking about power, let's not shy away from a hard question here. How many of us this morning feel that we can honestly say, like Peter did, I have no silver and gold? Not many of us, I think. The truth is that we do have silver and gold. We have money, we have food, we have resources. We have homes and cars and friends and insurance. Some people may have more than we have, but I think... Sitting here in Sunningdale, we can certainly say we're closer to the top than to the bottom. I find it an interesting thought that today's middle class actually lives in more luxury than most kings of history. Think about it, we have running water. We have electricity. Sometimes. (laughs) We have electricity sometimes. You know, Solomon had it never. And this is not necessarily wrong, by the way. I'm not in any way coming to poke a finger at you and say, look how bad you are. You have wealth. That's not the point. Possessions are not inherently evil. God gives prosperity to his people. It's it's from God that everything we have comes as a stewardship for his purposes. It's not evil to be wealthy if we're submitted in obedience to God. But this is the tough question I have for you. What if Peter had been walking around with a bag of coins? Maybe, is it possible he would have just handed over a couple of coins and gone about his day? Do you begin to see what I mean here? You and I, we're, we're wealthy, and we're able to share, and we're generous. We want to share. I praise God. But sometimes, you know, it's, is it possible that we prefer to just give a bit of money to the needy while we withhold that one thing they truly need? That's the tough question. And I know that I do. I don't even carry cash anymore. So now when I'm stopped at that light and someone comes to my window, I don't have anything to give to them. And I have to think, where's your Yoko machine? But do you, do you know the thought that I caught going through my head the other day? Someone is walking past, and I thought to myself, it, it was an ugly, ugly thought. I thought, I should keep some change in my car so I can just give them some money and they'll leave me alone. And I I heard that in my own mind, and I was shocked. Where is my heart that it's so easy to hand over a token bit of money so I can feel like a good person? I can feel I've done my Christian duty, and I never, never have to have a conversation with that person, and especially not a conversation about Jesus. There is no greater need in the universe than the need for salvation. There's no greater answer to that need than Jesus. But I fear that sometimes we let our wealth speak for us and keep us silent about our Savior. Or perhaps it goes even deeper. Perhaps we simply struggle to believe that Jesus could even be enough. Maybe we're ashamed to face a hungry, needy person and offer them Jesus when what they want is food. And look, there is a biblical basis for some of that shame. James 2, verse 15 to 16 says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? You see, we we can't allow our kind words to free us from providing for material need. The way we live, our generosity will underwrite the message we speak. But we also cannot allow material provision to cover over the deeper need for Jesus and his salvation. Jesus is my deepest need. Jesus is your deepest need. He's the deepest need of the world. And Jesus can satisfy that need. So my challenge to you is when we give, Don't just hand over something and leave it at that. Push in. Look closely at the other person, like Peter did. Ask questions. Listen. Have a conversation. Do what it takes to make sure you can tell that person about Jesus. Be bold. Take a risk. Take a risk. I find that I tend to overthink, and I start finishing the conversation before I've started. I'm like, then I bring up Jesus, and they'll say, oh, yeah, I've heard of him. He didn't do me any good. And I think, oh, and then I'll... Be embarrassed and then the light goes green and I have to drive away. You know, take a risk. I'm preaching to myself here. This gospel is too good. Jesus is enough to satisfy. All right, turning to the second part, proclamation. Firstly, let's read Acts 3, verse 11 to 12. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. Something cool in in Acts chapter 3 is that this lame beggar provides a sort of object lesson of the gospel. So if you're new here, or maybe you've never understood fully what Christians are on about when we say this word gospel again and again, I thought let's just go through this as a really simple way to look at it. But maybe I should also say, if you're not new here, now's not your time to tune out. Hearing the gospel message is why we gather to remind ourselves of the goodness of God. So here's this this man who was lame from birth. And in that same way, we're born in sin. Dead in sin, in fact, is the way the Bible describes it. He had no control over his lameness, and he couldn't heal himself. And that's the same way that every human being is dead in sin and we can't save ourselves. No dead thing can make itself alive. He was begging for a bit of money, but he had this deeper need that he didn't even know how to ask for. In this, you can see that the unsaved world and you and I before Jesus, we were running after every kind of earthly thing, trying to find something that would satisfy what we needed without knowing what we truly needed or maybe without, without even knowing it was possible to get what we truly needed. Peter saw him and reached down, just like Jesus stepped down into our world. Peter pulled him up to his feet and he was healed. Jesus died and he rose again and he is able to raise us up with him to new life. Acts 3 verse 16, And Jesus' name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man his perfect health in the presence of you all. Faith in the name of Jesus is where we find our salvation. So this moment happens. This power is poured out. This this beggar is healed. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, verse 7. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, where are the the young people in this room? Yes, well done. But actually, I I need you to be a specific kind of young, because have you ever seen a Mr. Beast video? Okay, good. So, if you haven't, if you haven't seen a Mr. Beast video, he's a YouTuber who... His basic thing is like to give away lots of money and stuff and cool games and stuff on YouTube. And so, when some person wins one of Mr. Beast's challenges and he hands over that prize, have you ever seen the response? You can think of another game show if you haven't seen Mr. Beast. Have you ever seen someone win a million rand, and they're like, "Oh yeah, thanks. I'm going home." You know. Here's an alternative example: um, when Oprah says, "Look under your chair." You know, she starts dishing out the gifts. You get a car. You get a car. No one has ever been bored or indifferent in that moment. I promise you that. That Even when we're watching it on TV, we sit up a bit straighter. What's she going to give away today? But sometimes we act like our salvation is more like a ticket for a free dentist visit than a gift of eternal life. See, my friends, there is a right response to salvation. When this lame beggar was delivered of his disability, he jumped to his feet and began leaping and dancing and running around, praising God. And when God raised you to new life, did you run into that light and start living the life that God has given you? Or are we pretending that we're still dead in our sins? When God calls you to wake up, do we rise and shine? Or do we hit the snooze on that new life? Say, five more minutes, God. I'm not saying we have to be leaping and dancing and running around. The introverts in the room, relax. <laughs> but I am saying this. If you are alive in Christ this morning, then look alive. Put a smile on your face. Put a song on your lips. Rise and shine and live the life that Christ has given you to the fullest, to the absolute fullest. I'm not a naturally very expressive person. I've known these incredible worshipers who seemed like they were oblivious to what people around them thought, in a good way. They could could jump, they could (laughs) dance, they would fall down on their knees, they would lie flat on the floor in front of God if that's what they felt in their worship. They were expressive to the limits and, and that's such an inspiration to me and such a challenge because I find it so hard to follow in their footsteps. But I'm always challenging myself to step further outside my comfort zone for God. God is too great to only worship Him the way that I am comfortable to worship. God deserves my lifted hands. He deserves a shout of hallelujah. He deserves, hallelujah, thank you, Dolores, thank you. He deserves that I would praise Him, that I would jump, clap, dance, cheer, kneel, bow, sing so loud my voice host. God deserves that I would praise Him to the fullest. And this this lame beggar is pretty cool because you can see when he received the gift of healing, man, he went wild to praise God. The more I see God, the more I love him, and the more wholeheartedly I want to worship him. This is why, if you were wondering, that's why we always sing a song after the preaching. It's not as a neat sort of bow to tie on our service. It's a response. We come to his word in preaching, and we look deep, and we see, and we rejoice in who God is and then we stand up and we express that delight and joy and worship that too is the cycle of power and proclamation we come to the word and the Holy Spirit works in power to reveal God to you and then you stand up and we proclaim to one another in song the greatness of our God now that we're all hyped to sing we're going to move to the next point (laughs) but hold on to this energy, (laughs) hold on to this energy. Acts 3 verse 9 to 10, all the people saw him, there's a reason, yes, the greatness of God is the greatest reason, but if you're a practical minded person, look at this logic, Acts 3 verse 9 to 10, all the people saw him walking and praising God, and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms, And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The joy of that healed man caught the attention of everyone in that temple. And it pulled them into the room. When you, when the joy of God is visible in you, the people around you are going to recognize you. And they're going to come together and wonder, like, what is going on? He, this guy, he's not out to get attention. He's not out to draw a crowd. But he's just celebrating the gift of God with everything he's got. And that gets people interested. That gets people asking questions. When you and I go and live the life that God has given us to the fullest, we are going to pull people into the room where they're going to become present in a heaven meets earth kind of moment. That's a gospel moment. So I'm coming to the end of my message, but I need your attention for just a few more minutes. Okay, okay. So we understand we have the power of God in us, that Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And we understand that our lives and our joy can create gospel opportunities. So we need just one more thing here. We need to learn how to proclaim. So let's learn that from Peter, all right? Six easy steps. Power, joy, proclamation. Acts 3, verse 12. When Peter saw it, saw the people coming together, he addressed the people. So step one is recognize the moment. Learn to recognize the opportunity to proclaim. And the best way to learn this is to just take all the opportunities. And later, you can learn when it's not the opportunity. We tend to do it the other way. We tend to skip all the opportunities, waiting till we know for sure, for sure, for sure, this is it. It doesn't work like that. Trial and error. Trial and error. That's a sure way to DIY. Trial and error. Recognize the moment. Direct the focus off yourself and onto Jesus. Verse 12. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made them walk? The faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter says, don't look at me. Look at him. Look at Jesus. Thirdly, proclaim who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Verses 13 to 15. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Jesus died for you, says Peter. And God raised him up. Proclaim what Jesus has done. Here comes the tough one. Confront the guilt of your listeners. Now we feel a bit more uncomfortable. Verse 14 to 15, you denied the holy and righteous one. You killed the author of life. It's rough. It, I'm, not, I'm not sugarcoating it. Preaching the gospel must include an honest explanation of guilt. There's no good to come to someone and say, Yeah, you're pretty good. You're a nice kind of person. Can we tack Jesus' name on the end of your name? It doesn't help. The reality is we are sinners. That's what Jesus is saving us from. He'll never convert anyone if you first convince them they don't need salvation. You don't need it, but take it anyway. That doesn't work. We do need it, and we've got to help people to understand that they need it too. Be bold. Take a risk. Every person you speak to who doesn't know Jesus desperately needs Jesus. Point five, four, five, five. Hold out the grace of Jesus. Verse 18 to 21. What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. There is grace. That is why we can be bold to point out sin and guilt, because there is grace. It's not condemnation. It's not to come and say, you wicked person, you're doomed. No. Yes, you've messed up. Yes, you've made mistakes. But the grace of Jesus is bigger and better than that. Yes, you're not a perfect person. But Jesus didn't come to save perfect people. Lastly, call for repentance. We usually, even the best of us, we skip this step. We'll we'll share the gospel, but we we shy away from really calling for repentance. Call Call for a response. Verse 19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Call for repentance. Say to that person, I've told you what Jesus has done. Please, friend, receive it. Don't walk away from this moment. You can, you can plead. You can ask. It's not, it doesn't have to be, oh, if you feel like it, it doesn't really matter. No. Turn. Flee. Save yourself from this sin. Don't go down this path of destruction. Please, come receive Jesus. Know how good God is. Call for repentance. Be bold, my friends. The point I didn't put up there is response. The question, it's a question mark. Because in Acts 2, 3,000 were saved. And in Acts 4, they dragged them before the authorities and charged them not to preach anymore. And began to persecute the church. And when we preach, those we preach to, how will they respond? We don't know. You don't know. You can't guarantee someone's response. Waiting for the perfect moment doesn't guarantee salvation. It is God who decides. The response is in God's hands. The power is his. Salvation is his. Our only job is to rejoice and proclaim. God will save those he wants to save. He's inviting you into it. Take hold of the mission. Go out. Proclaim. See how great this gospel is. The rest is in God's hands. The band can come up and I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this incredible passage of scripture. I thank you for your word that teaches us how to live that teaches us more than just how to live. It teaches us who you are. I thank you for your greatness, your loving kindness, your perfect salvation, your unlimited grace towards us, no matter how many times we turn back and say, God, I messed up. You keep on giving us more grace. I thank you that salvation is in your hands, but you have given us the joyful privilege of partnering with you in power and proclamation I pray this morning, Lord, that you would freshly commission each one of us to be sent ones on your gospel mission. Your kingdom is coming. Jesus, you are coming back soon. But until you do, we ask that question, who is the Father giving us? Help us to see and to know, to serve, to love, and to speak the truth of who you are. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand and let's sing in response to our great God.